What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to another week. This week, we talked to one Brent Giannata. Yes, we do. And he actually spent some years as a CIA counterterrorism analyst. And it seems like this kind of thing has been a recurring theme lately around here. <laughs> yeah, we've had the, what is this, our fourth? I think so. In the same vein, yeah. yeah. Um, but they all had something different to add, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's similar, but each one's from a different area. Uh, Brent's specialty was like Syria. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of different uh, aspects to counterterrorism and war. And, you know, with World War III right around the corner, it seems like the sort of thing we should brush up on. <laughs> uh, but he gives us all sorts of insights on what his thoughts are on Ukraine and everything that he saw while he was in there. Yeah, and that includes, you know, how does a counterterrorism analyst get their data and how do they analyze it? And on top of that, we start off on one of my favorite topics, physics and astrophysics. <laughs> he also goes into how broken the CIA was. Yes, it's quite a mess out there. Uh, but he is a fantastic guest to uh, take us all the way through the journey about what's wrong with the CIA. Why did he leave the CIA? What did he discover while he was in the CIA? <laughs> up to these days brent what's uh what are you working on right now well i'm a contract writer which means i do like all sorts of just random writing projects i just did one for the history channel it's like a spin-off show of ancient aliens it's called the proof is out there what? and so uh yeah it's not my favorite project but it is tv which i've never done before and i basically have to uh go through like interesting things that are found in nature or around the world, interesting like rock formations, and then explain how it could be aliens uh -huh. and then explain what it actually is. Like monoliths and shit. Exactly. Yeah. So there, you guys know Stonehenge in England, there's actually right. a Stonehenge in Portugal too, that no one knows about. Yeah. And so I just have to like postulate for multiple pages about like, are these aliens like ask the question, like pull it apart, figure out how they might do it, how we might have missed it. And then like, oh, actually, no, that's not actually do we actually have science in and history. Huh? Do you believe in aliens? Um, no, I don't. Not at all. You don't think there's a chance in hell? <laughs> I think there's a chance. But do you guys know the Fermi paradox? I do. No, I don't. I think it's fucking fascinating. Oh, yeah. Fermi, I, I, the, I'm actually in the process of listening to the audiobook of uh Astrophysics for people in a hurry. Mm. Yeah. Is that Neil deGrasse? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That guy's good. Yeah, he is. But go on. Yeah. Tell, tell, tell Grizz uh, about the Fermi paradox and why he's not going to have aliens building his pyramids. The, <laughs> the Fermi paradox, it postulates that around the same time that a species gets intelligent enough to develop the technology to explore the heavens, it de facto already has the means to destroy itself. Mm -hmm. So, we as humans sent up the first satellite in the 50s um, and we exploded the first atomic bomb in the 40s. So whether it's nuclear holocaust or you know, climate change disaster, whatever it is, um, we can like extinguish ourselves in an astronomical nanosecond. And so that's why we've never found anybody. No one's ever found us and we've never found anyone else. 
I, I don't think we ever will. I don't think we'll ever find anyone, right? I don't yeah. think that we'll ever either have a satellite that's that powerful that we can see that close, or I don't think that we'll ever have space travel in a, in a way that we can get there in a reasonable time fashion. To me, that doesn't say that there's not, and when I say aliens out there, like I'm talking, it could be bacteria, right? And so to me, there's just, the galaxy's way too damn big to not have it out there. But will we ever see it? No. I mean, space yeah. travel doesn't, humans aren't meant to be in space. <laughs> like at That's all. True. That's true. What is it that, that astronauts have after being up for like three months? Something with their eyeballs? Oh, they've got all kinds that? of things. Uh, it really so, fucks with their eyeballs. I'll look at so it. So everything about being in space with zero gravity. Uh, Brent, we'll get, we'll get to uh, some CIA stuff in a minute here, but, but we always talk about space all the time on the show. Oh, cool. So if you're if you go up into space and you spend a significant amount of time there, your muscles atrophy, you have to work out for multiple hours a day on bands, your vision starts to deteriorate and your bones start to lose density and that calcium collects in your internal organs. Fantastic. Jesus. Yeah. All right, oh, do you want to hear about the eyeballs? Yeah, 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 tell us all about it. The study found that vision deterioration in astronauts is likely due to the lack of day-night cycle and intracranial pressure. Researchers found that in zero gravity conditions, intracranial pressure is higher than when people are standing or sitting on Earth, but lower than when people are sleeping on Earth. And if anyone's ever dealt with any sort of eye pressure problems, that sucks. Mm. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. But if you're going for long distance, it's just going to get worse. I actually just uh, I came across something called a Minkowski scale. Um because we're talking about, you know, like the Fermi paradox and the concept of going to visit another civilization if one were to exist. Mm. You would effectively need faster than light uh, space travel. Absolutely. And this Minkowski scale actually breaks down in a visual form why if we did succeed in faster than light travel, we could end up causing universe-breaking causality loops. Oh, it just, it's not possible. We'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> the human body can't take it. Mm. It's not That's just true. a human body. We don't yeah. we don't know what would happen if we were to, to somehow accidentally interrupt a timeline. Are you talking time now? Or are you talking space? That's time? that's what a causality loop is. So you know the grandfather paradox. You can't go back and kill your grandfather because then you wouldn't have gone back to kill him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. If you can travel faster than light, which means that means you can send messages faster than light, and you can accidentally send a message back to where you came from before a specific event that happened after that message was sent. It gets real convoluted and pretty sketchy. It seems like a terrible idea. I don't think we'll ever get it though. <laughs> it does seem like an awful idea. Somewhere yeah. in this, we're supposed to be talking about former CIA activities though. <laughs> yeah, so how do you go from, uh, before we get to that, how do you go from CIA counterterrorism to writing for TV? Yeah, so I was an analyst. I wasn't uh, one of the case officers that runs around the world and slips in and out of dangerous situations. So oh, those guys, Bourne. what's that? Yeah. No James Bourne? Not, not Jason Bourne. So those guys get the information and then me and my team, you know, synthesize it, figure out what's important, what isn't, turn it into a story and then tell that story to policymakers, military, White House, foreign uh, allies and whatnot. So it's a lot of reading and it's a lot of writing. We usually say it's like halfway between journalism and academia. So, um, you know, it's like understanding things like, you know, Islam, political Islam, 
extremist psychology, like on an academic level, and then applying that to, you know, being able to tell a story to convey like the urgency of a threat to someone who doesn't really know those types mm-hmm. of basics. So um, it's not really that all that dissimilar from being a journalist. So I left after five and a half years, like for a lot of reasons. The main one was that uh, we didn't really have a cohesive strategy vis-a-vis Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a tactic to take out ISIS, which did work. We, um, we armed the Kurds and uh, we aided them with a lot of military assets and uh, aerial vehicles and whatnot. But just, I mean, five years of work that we did, it, it amounted to like very little. We couldn't stop the slaughter and the killing that's actually still going on now. So that's like, that's a general reason. A more specific reason is there was uh, a reorg within my branch of the CIA that, I mean, this can happen like literally any kind of organization you're working in. Mm-hmm. I just, we all had a different boss. Like we you know came in on Monday, we had a different boss and that person happened to value the um, analysis from a different group rather than my group. So my group of analysts suddenly were kind of like downgraded as far as the influence that our work had in this other team of targeters who are operators and are not trained the same way we are, don't do the same things we do. Their work was elevated. It's not really anyone else's fault. And so that just like sucked all the fun out of it. It's like mm-hmm. the only reason to be in a conflict, they're just like as horrific as that is if you can, is if you have the potential to affected in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And it looked like we were, we could in 2013, 2014, but by 15, just the wheels just flew off and we couldn't do anything else. So I was the first one to walk out the door. My entire team followed me uh, over the next year or two. Um, and so I tried my hand at journalism, which is really fun, but doesn't pay the bills. No. <laughs> and uh, so when you're a journalist that wants to start eating, you do public relations. So I did that at two different firms in New York City. And then I had just joined a new agency um, at the beginning of 2020. And I really love this agency because they only uh, supported like rights organizations. So like women's rights, immigrants, like I could, I could sleep well and think well about myself at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, but then the shutdown happened. So they sent us all back to our tiny apartments. Uh, mine is in lower Manhattan. So mine is extra small. <laughs> and uh, my company just, you know, they just didn't, adjust well to it. So my last meeting of the day started out at, you know, 5 PM, then it was 6 PM. Suddenly it was 9 PM. Suddenly all of us are on call 24 hours a day. It just like slipped out of control. So the job wasn't so much fun anymore. Um, I was losing my mind. So was my roommate. And I thought, Hey, pretty good, like opportunity to go back to LA where I'm from and, uh, you know, live in a place with some more space. So now I'm doing PR writing on a freelance basis. I've set my own schedule and I take in all sorts of weird new clients and uh, it's interesting and it's, uh, it's gratifying too. We found time and time again, if people don't have a purpose, especially when it comes to work, it's never going to happen, right? Yeah. If you can believe yeah. in what you're doing and believe that you have a purpose and that you're actually going for a goal, it's all good. But once that goal has gone and there's no purpose, it just deteriorates hard as we're seeing all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people are in denial about that early on. They want to go into finance to make that money, uh, go into law, where maybe they'll start out like, oh, I'm going to you know, be a public defender, but then they go corporate and they'll do you know, 5, 10, 12 years. Like, you guys have friends who did this, so do I. And then, yeah, their life deteriorates as they get richer and richer and they wonder why. So it's, mm-hmm. it's better to stumble upon this realization about how 
humans actually work earlier rather than later. And I consider myself lucky in that regard, even though I'm um, pretty poor. But, uh, you know, it's, it could be worse. Not too bad. You do live in L.A., so it's pretty easy to be poor there. Yeah, real easy. Yeah, you can try really hard and still be poor around here. Do you have a car out there? Yeah, I have a car. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is what it is. You make adjustments. You know when not to get on certain freeways. That really helps out a lot. So let's get back to uh, the CIA thing. What you started? When did you say you started doing that? Summer 2010. Summer of 2010. How did you end up in that position? So um, I'm 41 years old. That means when 9-11 happened, I was a junior in college at USC here in LA. And I had already become an international relations major because my dad had given me a couple books about globalization that just like is the first thing that caught my attention in a academic sort of scholarly way. So I'm like, all right, IR sounds like something really cool. I can kind of like know some context behind the stories on the front page of the newspaper. And so as an IR major living in a fraternity and on that morning, we're watching, you know, the towers burn and then collapse. And I'm surrounded by my fraternity brothers who were all business majors or film majors. And uh, then they flashed Osama's face on the screen and they all looked at me and they're like, well, who is that guy? And I'm like, I have no idea. And I felt mortified. Like I'd let my buddies down in their time of need when they needed, you know, answers the most. And so I was like, that's it. So, um, so reading the newspaper a bunch and I signed up to learn, uh, start taking Arabic lessons. Mm -hmm. And so I took, uh, like an intensive summer program at UCLA I graduated, I flew right to Lebanon and did an intensive summer at uh, the American University in Beirut there. Like I was really, really into it. I really got to like the language and all the sort of cultural education that comes along with it. Um, I got a scholarship to get a grad degree in Cairo to get a, a degree in Middle East studies. And so I pop out of grad school. And so, I mean, I can find, you know, Syria on a map in under 30 seconds, but like not really any more lucrative skills than that. So my options of where I can actually work are pretty limited. So I just applied to all the places you would assume, like FBI, mm. Defense Intelligence Agency, State Department, and CIA. And to be honest, I didn't want to work for the CIA because it has such like a fraught history with mm. all sorts of different regions. I mean, the agency's done a bunch of unforgivable stuff, especially mm. in like Central America in the 80s and like trying to overthrow Mossadegh in the 50s in Iran and just I mean like the Bay of Pigs like trying to assassinate Castro and failing just like ruined a lot of legitimacy that the, U the United States likes to think we hold mm -hmm. abroad and so I knew that I knew that it had a really bad reputation in the Middle East among Muslims and among Arabs and I had come to like really like this culture and really like the people I met I didn't want to be seen as like underhanded or trying to, you know, two-time people or be, be an enemy in that part of the world. But I moved to DC and I started working at a human rights organization as a human rights watch for two years. And while I was in DC and my application was processing with the agency, I met, you know, people here and there who I trusted enough to let them know where I'm applying. And they would, you know, they would in a low voice say, if you get in there, that is the absolute best job you can possibly have because the opportunities for travel, for language learning, mm -hmm. the skills you can pick up there are really, you can't get those anywhere else 
anywhere, in mm-hmm. any company, in any organization, anywhere. And so I kept hearing this and hearing this. And I got more and more excited about it. And then, then I got a rejection letter <laughs> from them. They're like, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and so, well, all right, that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So sidebar, my parents are from Detroit, Michigan, and I grew up in LA actually playing ice hockey. And so I joined a team when I got to DC and uh, I happened to be the youngest guy on this team. All these guys are in their forties and fifties. And after game number three, we all went out for beers and I went around the room. I'm like, what do you do? What do you do? Mm. And, you know, lawyers and people work in the Senate and they do real estate. The last guy I asked, he's like, I actually work at the CIA. And I said, you guys just told me to go pound sand. Yeah. And he said, how's your Arabic? And I'm like, I'm, I can convince you that I'm fluent. And he's like, send me a resume. Turns out that guy was a very senior analyst who was best friends with the guy in the human resources department. And suddenly it was back on. And uh, yeah, a year and a half later, after a nine month security background check, um, I started up in 2010. So that's how I got there. That's uh, that's some serious luck too, on top of uh, you know the standard networking. Now, did you end up having to get uh, the uh, a security clearance for the government to go and do the uh, the anal- analyzing that you were doing? Yeah. So every officer at the CIA, no matter what they're doing, has right. a top secret SCI, um, special compartmented information clearance. Okay. Like no uh, one, <laughs> no one who deals with who deals with CIA information has anything less than that. So if someone has secret, they're not they're not there. They're at the State Department or something else. Okay. Uh, actually, yeah, Grizz here and myself, we both have a secret. I don't sure. have any interest in getting a top secret. Fuck no. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so once you finally got into the CIA, uh, did, did you feel like, you know, it was everything you had built up in your mind or were you totally let down? Um, neither of those somewhere in between. <laughs> okay. So it was, we'll start with the bad <clears throat> So it is like a normal workplace where like the printer breaks, <laughs> like when you need mm-hmm. something printed like yesterday and there's office politics and there's egos and every now and then like you get a new boss who's like pretty much incompetent, mm-hmm. like all that stuff totally happens. And there's just like way too much bureaucracy. And you're like, mm-hmm. when lives are on the line, like how is this, how is any of this happening? And like your, your boss will be like, you need to go to, you know, you need to go to um, Germany. And like, okay, so you go to the travel department and like, we can't get you to Germany for like six weeks. Like, I need to be there next week. And they're just like, okay, we'll try. And you don't hear from them forever. Like, that's like really common. Like, yeah, hysterical (laughs) stuff that's funny afterwards, but not when you're in the thick of it. But on the good side, it it was exactly what I wanted for my career at that point because I was overeducated and I felt like I'd put in a lot of like scholarly work and I'd read a million things and I wanted to put all that to use. And they absolutely let me do that. Um, CIA analysis, they give analysts like a lot of autonomy. It's, it's really, it's like almost, it's almost irresponsible. <laughs> so I was, I started when I, right before my 30th birthday, but there were kids that popped right out of college. They were there 23 years old and like, analyzing who should live and who should maybe not live type of stuff. Um, I totally don't have a respect for that kind of thing at that point in life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can hope. Um, But yeah, it's like, it's, it's major stuff. 
and the the sort of importance behind the work just like makes you more dedicated to it. I mean, I would come in, I would stay, you know, late nights and come in on weekends for no, they don't pay overtime unless you get it approved by a million people. And there'd be half my team. And on a Saturday or a Sunday, like everybody is really dedicated to that, to that mission, to doing right by this kind of work. And I mean, ultimately we are kind of a think tank that feeds the best information possible to our main client who is, the president of the United States, but we also feed stuff to the military and state department and foreign allies. And we're supposed to protect the United States. That's like the, the oath that we took, but mm-hmm. implicit in that is that you're protecting the free world and just innocent people everywhere from like, mm-hmm. you know, not dying when you're innocent, when you shouldn't be not getting murdered by, you know, people who don't have that kind of authority. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, all that responsibility, like it, it feels good and it makes you work really hard. I thought they hired extremely well. Um, my team was phenomenally talented, like really smart, worked really well, like speed readers, just process information really well, great communicators. I think they trained really well. I did a five month training. It's like a writing boot camp, an analysis boot camp. You're training these structured analytic techniques that like obliterates your bias <laughs> and makes you sort of like weaponize the wisdom of crowds to make sure you don't stumble and do something that like all humans do, which is like we all harbor a thousand little stupid beliefs about ourselves or about others or about the world around us. You just cannot let affect the way you think when lives are on the line. Yeah. And so all of that stuff made it just the absolute coolest professional experience ever. And being able to travel, I went to like a million countries, like places I never thought I'd be able to go to. I got to, you know, brief national security council. And I mean, people treated me like I was a celebrity uh, in certain places. I mean, I would be in front of an auditorium full of people and I would have people at like think tank meetings who I really, really respect. Like some of my heroes like point over to me and be like, Hey, we need, we want to know what you think. Um, saw so that was just like incredibly cool. Yeah, that's pretty you awesome. You're done with like a package or, or whatever. You've done your your analysis. Are you just handing it up to them blindly and letting them interpret it however the hell they want? Or are you going through it with them? Um, so the first thing before that is to determine like what is the best vehicle to convey this information. Mm. So it's a lot like being a journalist. If you've ever worked in journalism, there's like different journalistic products. There's like a hard news report there's a profile, there's um, like an opinion piece, there's like a long form step back piece. We have the exact same stuff in mm. CIA now. So got like 10, 11 different uh, products. And so a good analyst can see a story and then figure out like, what is the audience that needs to hear this? And like, what's the best way to convey it to that audience? Because different products go to different audiences. So maybe something doesn't need to go to the entire intelligence community. Maybe something only needs to go to the national security council or only needs to go to the military or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So that that's the first calculation involved. And then, um, and then you're, you're writing the thing in the most precise like language possible. So like every word counts. And for me personally, I love the, the process of like having a sentence, like 35 words, crunching it down to 24 words, but it conveys the same amount of information. I, I found that to be very gratifying. It's like a weird, like, quirk about me that I, that I discovered. And then, you know, you're 
getting this edited by a ton of people and like going through like 10 levels of editing. You're calling in the smartest people that you know to ask them, like, did I miss anything? And right. um, it's implementing all those changes. And then your manager is actually the one that kind of like pushes publish for mm. you. Um, but if it's a certain type of product, you get to brief it. So yeah, because who would, better, right? What's that? Yeah, because who better, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if it's going into the PDB, the presidential daily brief, you will come to work at like 4.30 in the morning nice. and uh, somehow be awake enough to get your brain working, which is not an easy feat for me. And then you go to a certain office where there's a bunch of, you know, people who look like they've been, they haven't slept in a month because they haven't. And I go in and it's, it's kind of like an audition where the person hearing you is just like completely overworked and doesn't give, doesn't care like who you are, just wants to hear your elevator pitch. And so you got like a minute to kind of wow them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, top line, and then here are the three reasons why that's happening. And then here are three implications that could happen. Here's, yeah, here's keywords. And here's like things we could do to like make the situation better. And uh, then they like scribble like quick notes and then they like jump in a van, drive into DC and then they uh, go into the Oval Office and they tell that to the president. It's like mind blowing. (laughs) So I got to imagine you're probably limited on, you know, just how much you can share because of the sensitivity of what you're working on. But when you're doing the research and getting the data to actually analyze, where is that coming from? I was known as what's called an all source analyst, which is, you know, pretty self-explanatory, but we have a search engine. Um, So like Google will be for anything open source. The one that I had was for every counterterrorism report ever produced by my agency. Now, is that like, um, is that like the thing that they had in the Snowden movie? Uh, I actually didn't see the Snowden movie. Uh, Okay. It's the same kind of concept where it's like, yeah. almost like an underground search engine that's government specific. Like I couldn't access that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can I, you can't. Um, yeah. What I like to tell people is that the intelligence community community is like remarkably intuitive. Like if you imagine that you're suddenly in charge of like keeping <clears throat> America safe, like how would you do it? That's pretty much how we do it. So it just makes it like super easy to access any report that I need. And if something new comes in, I'm like, oh, so now this person sounds interesting or dangerous. I wonder if there's anything else on him or her. I just like drop their name in and I got everything ever. So there's definitely open source information in there. We've got the open source center that handles all that and kind of curates that kind of information, like separates the wheat from the chaff, the important stuff from the non. And then we've got reports from the FBI, the NSA, DIA, military intelligence, everything, everything. And that's, so, that's where it comes from. So when so you were traveling, <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of hands in there. So when you're traveling for work while you're doing the, uh, this kind of job, were you just going to other countries to present information or was that part of your data collection too? It was mostly the former. Okay. So as analysts, <clears throat> each person on my team is supposed to be and and was successful at becoming like a world expert in their tiny narrow lane in the road. And so I was on the line as we say for, you know, three and a half years. So like maybe no one on earth knew more about, you know, Syrian foreign fighters from Europe than I did. And so the agency would use me as 
like a bargaining chip to get other countries to cooperate more closely with the United States on whatever we wanted for them. So like my expert information, my expert brief was held to be something of value of like enough value that, you know, if I went to Ireland, it was pretty much guaranteed that Ireland was going to play ball on like one or two sort of operations or programs Mm -hmm. that we wanted to like run with them, that kind of thing. Now, did you only really touch on Syria or did you touch on other areas as well? Yeah. I mean, it expanded to the entire world because so ISIS used to be Al Qaeda in Iraq and they surged across the border in 2012 or 2011 when the civil war started. And then, I mean, they were an internet phenomenon in a way that Al Qaeda really never was. They made really high quality recruitment videos. Now that's us on YouTube and on, you know, other sites that, that are on the dark web and people all over the world are watching these things. And if you're down and out, life's not sort of doing it for you. Uh, you feel like, you know, you're, uh, marginalized or, you know, you don't see like that your life is going in the right place. Then there's like a very simple, like sequence narrative for you to go from, we would say from the fringes of society to the center of world events, because I mean, I don't know what it was like for you guys, but for like three years, ISIS was on the front page of mm-hmm. the news, like all, almost every day. Yeah. Yeah. And so these foreign fighters, they came in from over 80 countries or over 40,000 of them. And I was put on the small team that had to count them and then analyze them and find like trends. Like, who are these people? How can we identify them? How can we get to them? Or, you know, how do we stop them or get them to do something, you know, more right than wrong? Um, So that was my beat. So what's it like when you're looking at all these different people and trying to analyze their level of risk? Do you have to kind of look at it and be like, you know, there's only a 50% chance. So I'm putting this one on a back burner. Is it, is it that kind of sketchy? Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's kind of like that. Again, it's like really intuitive. So if you were in, in this position, I, I did exactly what you would do. You would look at their communications or to the extent that you had it. And if someone was talking to his buddy about, hey, like, I really want to, you know, blow up this thing in Europe. Well, you would like look at the back and forth and see, is this guy full of shit or does he seem like he's just crazy enough to try to do it? Right. And you just use your like human psychological intuition. It's exactly what we did. And so I'm collecting all these. And I mean, when you're looking at this every single day, it, it gets to be kind of like second nature. And I'm like, you know, collating it and organizing it and figuring out like who is the most kind of fired up to be violent and Mm -hmm. who is maybe just bullshitting. And then the ones who seem the most dangerous, like who do they talk to? Who do they know? If they were going to like, like erect a cell to do something, who would probably be on their list of cellmates and then just build out a product from there. It kind of like, if you look at it, it makes sense now at least from the outside to how something like 9-11 could happen, right? Because they just look at it and they say, I don't think this isn't, the probability of this happening isn't high. Mm -hmm. I got to imagine, did you ever have anything go against your judgment? Yeah. And it probably, that's got to suck. Yeah, it was really bad. Yeah. It was really bad. It was really bad. Um, But I mean, all you can do is pick yourself up there and just keep on chugging, right? Or learn from it, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so the worst day of my career was three weeks before I, I resigned. 
and I didn't resign because of it. I that was my next question. Yeah, and I decided to resign. You know, six, seven, eight months before I actually did. Um, but yeah, it was the Paris attack, and okay. so there was you know many many furious debates about the level of threat, and um, there was a contingent that I thought was assessing the threat to be higher than I thought it was. Uh, but I was wrong. I was definitely wrong. Um, does, that, does that still weigh on you now? No. Um, for like a number of reasons. Uh, one is that like it happened in France and right. I don't, I'm not an yeah, officer pretty far of the French removed, government. Yeah. Far removed. There's only so much you can do. Yeah, you can't um, save the world. Right. Yeah, for, for an ally who just operates differently than we do. Um, second, you know, no one knows the future. And a lot of times being right <clears throat> is, is luck and being wrong mm -hmm. is bad luck. And one reason why I took my stance was because I felt that our analytic rigor was slipping. Mm -hmm. And so... Part of the reason um, that I took that stance was to balance it out. I thought, hey, like we need more consideration for this scenario mm. because just like if you're a journalist or a commentator, you want your area of expertise to be like kind of on fire. You want some drama to be there, um, even if there isn't. And if you happen mm. to be a little unscrupulous or if you happen to you know, just try to like give your career a little boost, you'll make things sound worse than they are. And this goes for, you know, all sorts of people and all sorts of jobs. And so us and the CIA, as CIA analysts, we're not immune to that. We're all human too. That's what I felt was happening. And I tried to balance that, or I tried to act as a, as a bumper like to that. As an advocate almost. Yeah. Or just like, Hey, let's, you know, let's examine this a little more rigorously so when uh, you guys were doing a review of something it was it was a group thing it wasn't just an individual being like yep this is it and set it out yeah You'd it was a group like thing. group debates it was a group thing but we all have our, our separate lanes in the road and Absolutely. so there were only like a few other people doing stuff really close to what i was doing mm. um, but again analysts are, are trained really hard to leverage the wisdom of crowds at every opportunity. So I'm pulling in people like multiple times a day who don't necessarily do what I do and don't know my problem set, but like, Hey, like you're coming in from the outside. Like you got to tell me if I'm missing something here and that's, mm. you know, that's worth its weight in gold. Now with that experience, then how do you view threats in general against the United States and the free world? Is that like a prolific problem that is just behind the scenes that we don't know about? Yeah, that's a common, common question. So it, it's not like that where there are tons of like dangerous threats that we're like not telling anybody we're like sitting on right. and we're addressing and we're just praying that like nothing bad happens. It's not really like that. And one reason is because, I mean, I was there during kind of a strange era in national security history where like threats number one, two, and three, all the way down to 10 were Islamic fundamentalism, mm -hmm. um, which like wasn't the case in the eighties and isn't really the case now. It was just, there's just like a window where I happened to be there. And that's what my grad degree was in. So I was like kind of right place at the right time. And, um, so 
one of my other beats was extremist psychology. And I had never taken a psychology class in my educational <clears throat> career, but after doing it as, as like, um, as like a layman, like, I don't know why schools don't mandate that for everybody, because once you get into just basic psychology, like so many things just make sense about human behavior. Mm. And so I had to get inside the minds of like a 22 year old, like ethnically Moroccan guy living in Belgium who just popped out of college with a computer science degree. Like him and I have nothing in common except that we're, we're dudes. We're met. We're like males. Like that's mm -hmm. it. Like I'm not a hard science guy. I'm not a Muslim. I don't live in a Francophone country in Europe. Like I have no idea what this guy's like, mm. what's inside his brain. But I had to like somehow as like a white male American, like to the best of my ability, explain to somebody else what motivates this guy. Mm -hmm. And so um, everybody is very sensitive about sort of their identity, like what they think about themselves and what other people think about them. And if that thing one day crumbles, uh, because something bad happened, like the human psyche has a way of like going on tilt. And I mean, people commit suicide um, for this kind of stuff. So it's an incredibly powerful motivator. And one's identity is fully social as you, everybody really cares about what other people think of them. Mm -hmm. And these guys are no, no exception. So all this to say that these guys will tell their buddies a lot of stuff to try to mm. make themselves look impressive. And that means they, they surmise, you know, doing attacks that they're never going to do. Mm. And that's sort they're of networking. like, they're networking and they're, and they're like posturing, mm -hmm. right. They're, they're peacocking for their yep. buddies. Absolutely. And so it's, it's just, it's like a funny rite of passage in my office where when you're a first year, second year analyst, you are making, like a lot of hay over stuff that's never going to happen. <laughs> and I totally did this. I embarrassed myself left and right for a year and a half. The old gristled analysts who've been doing and have seen everything, they, they have a very high bar for what to take seriously. And that's just like the nature of this specific threat. Stuff mm. like Russian nukes and Chinese cyber, totally different thing. But for Islamic fundamentalism, that's kind of how it went. I mean, I, I think of it a lot like, have you ever been in a room? You with a bunch of guys, we've all had that one guy that you know is just lying his face off, right? Yeah. He's just, he's yeah. posturing, he's putting it out, he's trying to make his dick bigger, right? Yeah. And then the other end, there's the silent guy on the other side, but you're doing it through like paper and video, I assume, and maybe audio. It's gotta be really hard <laughs> in, in another language. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you'd be surprised at, uh, at how much just being like a single dude uh, can help you relate to someone on the other side of the earth. Single you know? dudes across the world are trying to get laid over there too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like not all that dissimilar. Um, <laughs> you, you think what you will about, you know, the people of the Islamic faith, but man, as, as different as they look from us, we're remarkably, remarkably similar. Absolutely. Now, this, this kind of thing actually comes up on the show a lot with, uh, I guess we'll call it extremism and, you know, Grizz and I here, we just kind of, you know, we watch the news, we read news articles, and that's like the basis of our information on the modern world. And it looks to us like people are becoming more extreme on a larger scale. And mm -hmm. on top of that, especially for an analyst, 
there's a whole lot more internet chatter in particular and a lot a of lot people of that are communicating in so many more different ways in a larger quantity mm -hmm. have do you ever give any thought to the concept of like that kind of extremism growing here in the united states oh yeah i mean it i think there's all the evidence in the world that it's mm -hmm. fully happening yeah yeah you know, like homegrown terrorism yeah. yeah and you know obviously we have the increasing mass shootings but like just in general people are so polarized now that i don't even know what to make of it and how how would that affect someone in the analyst role where everybody is talking like that on the internet now yeah it makes it really hard yeah it, you just gotta filter through the noise right that's yeah. a whole lot of noise yeah well, you're, you're, of noise. you're absolutely right the the noise like 100x in not that not that much time mm -hmm. and so cia we deal exclusively with international threats it's the fbi that handles domestic threats mm -hmm. and uh that is an old bureaucracy over there they've got the most laughably antiquated technology in in a lot of different ways over there i've been over there and i've worked with them and uh man they don't move very fast and so yeah it's really really scary they've got a lot of a lot of work to do and hopefully they can <laughs> hire a lot more people who are, you know, younger and understand this kind of these kind of platforms a little better. I know that the IRS is not the FBI or the CIA, but I was reading today that the IRS is working on computers that are over 60 years old. <laughs> like, I know how the government gets funded and shit. I guarantee uh, at the end of the fiscal year, you could buy a new computer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's I mean, they will buy them new computers, but they won't use them. They'll just sit in a closet because all the systems that they're used to are on this old thing. Yeah. And actually, there's actually an odd uh, positive to having old computers. You can't hack them. That's true. It's hard, oh, yeah. harder to hack them. Yeah. No one understands DOS anymore, apparently. Right. <laughs> a lot of these, they've they got to be on secure internal networks, right? I, I don't yeah. imagine they're all, especially the IRS, like that 60 year old computer is not connected to Google for the most part. Uh, no. Yeah. I don't know. Wait, you was the yeah, internet? I, I'm, I'm totally guessing right now. That's my <laughs> yeah. assumption that that thing's not connected to the internet. No. Not like we think it is. Doesn't yeah. even have the port. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, worky worky. But uh, you know, since you know your expertise was more international, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, we got some issues going on, right? Yeah. You know, we've got Russia, China. Uh, I don't even know what to consider the Middle East right now. Uh, it's what, actually what, relatively quiet, isn't it? Yeah, it is relatively quiet. I, you know, China's kind of moving in there and taking over for financial reasons. Obviously, there's resources there they want. Um, but I haven't really heard much beyond, you know, some <clears throat> minor changes, you know, going back on promises that they said, you know, women are going to be able to go to school and they're backtracking on a lot of those mm -hmm. things. Do you still track that sort of thing? Middle East? Middle East and just global, global uh, activities in general. I've always been really attracted to whatever I think is the most important thing going on in the world. That's why 9-11 kicked me into counterterrorism analysis. Mm -hmm. um, but once ISIS was kind of gone and Al-Qaeda went quiet, I just don't care about it anymore. I got mm -hmm. to do the most important thing. And what so do you I'm, think do you, that is right now? Uh, it's, you know, it's Ukraine and yeah. Russia. I'm just watching it like a hawk. I'm listening to every podcast I can. Um, now, it's, I imagine you read between the lines a little bit with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've studied this stuff academically, so I probably have more context than the normal viewer. 
Um, there's, you know, commentators, I think are really smart and some, I don't think that are, um, I feel like I know where to read the good stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's important. And it's, it's almost more important than terrorism because it's threatening the entire world order. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Are you, are you telling us that you don't get your incredible information from the Joe Rogan podcast? <laughs> no, he's not. He didn't make my list. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I actually haven't been following the Ukraine situation too closely. Uh, you know, I'm not really in that realm. Uh, what do you think the likelihood is for this to escalate beyond where it is now? Yeah, it definitely could. Um, but there's a lot of reason to believe that probably the best analysis is that this is going to grind on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, all it takes is that spark, right? And we go in the opposite direction. Yeah. You don't want to do that. No. I mean, no one does. Right. So, so Putin has been in charge for over 20 years. That means he's got, he's got like a feral sort of genius to him or he's got like staying power. Mm-hmm. And, but people like him, just like terrorists, they, they go up to the line and they like half cross it, which is mm-hmm. kind of what he did. And then the reaction from everybody else is what determines whether they overstepped or not. And so, you know, he's he's going to just grind Ukraine into bloody rubble. Yep. And are we going to stand by and let it happen because we're afraid of nuclear holocaust? I mean, yeah, probably. Probably. Unfortunately, it's probably what we should do. Mm. Um, but, you know, we can rest a little a little more nicely at night because mutually assured destruction is still is still a thing that that appears in people's minds and hopefully his and hopefully ours that really nothing is worth that. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's a really shitty place to be, but um, I, I think for the most part, we're doing what we should be doing as, as a country. Unfortunately, I think our hands are tied, right? Just like you're saying, mm-hmm. if we, if we go over there, which we'd all love to do, boom, get done with it. Right. But it's not the right answer. Next yeah. thing you know, it, you've you went from a war that's just in the Ukraine and probably parts of Russia to everywhere, and now shit's at the fan and we're all fighting. Yeah, and it's World War Three, which is yeah. exactly what the international order was designed to prevent. Um, so yeah, we we are doing the right stuff by not going in, not escalating this thing, and having it spin out of control. And we're mm. sending like anti tank stuff, javelins to Ukraine, which is I think is what we should do because they've shown like remarkable um, adroitness and fighting against the Russians. Like it's the coolest part of this entire thing. Mm. Um, you know, Zelensky's leadership and him having been in TV, it, it makes him a naturally good communicator, which like it's, he's like perfect person for the perfect instance. It's, it's yeah. like remarkable what's he's happening there. I can't think of anything like this has ever happened before. And then the sanctions regime um, I'm like over the moon that we've gone as aggressively as we've gone and you know a lot of naysayers say well sanctions rarely work which is true but like that's using work in a very narrow sense it Mm. it, this can serve as a gigantic deterrent for someone like china who's kind of like way more about the benjamins than Mm -hmm. than putin's russia is i mean people think that since putin's kind of quote getting away with it in ukraine it's gonna you know encourage she to like go after Taiwan and other places. Mm-hmm. I think it could do the opposite. And they're seeing how blackballed Russia is becoming in the international community. 
China doesn't want that. They want their rise to be on a gigantic mountain of money. And they want, you know, all the trade deals and all the all the sort of extractive agreements with all sorts of different countries, the Belt Road Initiative. If they get blackballed, like Russia's getting blackballed, that whole thing collapses. So there's a lot, actually a lot of good that's coming out of this horrible situation. Do you think yeah. that crypto kind of changes that though with China? Right. Um, Russia's ruble plummeted. Right. Uh-huh. Like to minuscule. But if the, if China's watching this and saying, hmm, this is what will happen to us and just buys a shit ton of crypto, if they're not, they've already done it, they made their own crypto that now the world can affect. So all of a sudden you went from, oh, sanctions kind of do their thing and they work. And yeah, it, it punishes the people of Russia. Uh-huh. But now in China, you're not going to hurt them as much and they're just going to go do what they want to do. Yeah, well, it's way above my pay grade to decide oh, totally whether <laughs> with like an internal cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. you know, would be that you're not like pegging to the dollar or something like mm-hmm. that. Because I mean, Bitcoin, Ethereum, they've they've been like disappointingly, they've moved a lot with the markets. Yeah, right? so like market goes down, like that shit goes down, the value goes down, and so I just I can't imagine they would be able to stabilize their own cryptocurrency. But maybe yeah. they could. It's it's not my lane in the road. Um, I think if they try to be like a, a giant gamble, probably not go well for them. I mean, to, <laughs> for China to put themselves in the situation Russia's in right now, I just I don't see them wanting to do that at all. I don't think China's a big enough uh, dog in this fight yet. Mm-hmm. You know. Now we, yeah, we've I mean, talked the, about it multiple times in the show that China's goal is economic power. You know, Russia obviously they want money and they need it to to actively continue as a country, but that is clearly not their top priority. Yeah, they're much more of a nostalgic, like has been imperial power. I mean, he's living in the 19th century. He wants the Russian oh, Empire absolutely. back, and he's willing to sacrifice a lot to try to not necessarily get it back, but show the world that he's on the move. Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. I mean, China is nostalgic too. They're they want their empire back. They want sort of to be a world leader, like a at least a regional hegemon, if not a global hegemon. Um, but man, like they're, they're the world's factory, mm-hmm. you know, they're the world's maker of just like tchotchkes and just garbage or like stuff that we all, we all buy like mindlessly on Amazon. They need the rest of the world to like purchase that stuff. If we sanction them, I mean, I don't even know what would happen. That's also about mm. my pay grade. I should have studied <laughs> more here. economics. So, you know, I, I happen to think you know, it's, a, it's a super difficult situation. It's really unfortunate what's happening in Ukraine. I don't know for certain if they're going to end up taking over the whole country, but I think for the most part, they will end up breaking the country down and at the very least occupying a huge portion of it. Now, what what does that look like to you for like, you know, removing that big buffer of a country from the rest of Europe? Now that brings Russia right up to that border. Mm-hmm. You think that they'll stop there knowing that they got all the way through? Well, didn't we already see signs that they wanted to go through, keep on going? Well, that's why I'm asking. I figured I'd see what Brent thinks about it. <laughs> yeah, I think they definitely have the desire to, but having the capability, I actually don't. I don't think so. Given how badly they've they've managed this conflict, I mean, it's it's very expensive to wage war, but it's even more expensive to like hold territory while an insurgency is being waged against you i mean that's even worse it's like a right? half so, attempt right now <laughs> yeah i mean you think about like i mean the the mujahideen in afghanistan 
in the 80s, the, there was a complete quagmire disaster for the Soviet Union and they, they kicked them out. They like they got mm-hmm. out of out of Afghanistan and that helped like collapse the entire Soviet Soviet Union. And so if Russia, if Putin's Russia wants to try to take all of Ukraine, <clears throat> it could be very, very similar to that. Mm. And Putin, he's not a hist- historian, but he knows his history to some extent. The smartest people that I know are saying that he, Russia will take like small parts, like parts near the, the border of Belarus and then the Donbass area. So maybe like a 10th of the country, which for mm. a, a giant country like Ukraine is, is a lot of territory, but I just don't think they can afford in in manpower or in money, like occupying the entire country to the point where like Poland and Moldova are like, you know, the tanks are rolling up to their borders. I don't see that mm. happening. So, yeah, I mean, go ahead, to Andy. me, it's a, it's a big, like, if you look at Zelensky, this looks tired, man. Like, yeah, it is grinding yeah. on and it's not going to get better. And like, they have so many troops over there. Mm-hmm. They just keep sending them. Who cares? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Putin doesn't care. Putin doesn't care. But uh, a great lesson that you learn in uh, training in the intelligence community is that um, weird shit always happens in in global affairs. Stuff that no one ever thought would happen. The collapse of the Soviet Union, 9-11, Pearl Harbor, like the Yom Kippur War. There's, uh, you know, the Korean War, there, there's all sorts of things that like every like 10 out of 10 analysts is like, no, not going to or the Arab Spring. Like no one, the smartest people on planet Earth, like do not see these things coming. Mm. So that's like really important to keep in mind when someone thinks like, oh, well, you know, Putin will grind both Russia and Ukraine down for as long as it takes to like get his ego gratified. Maybe not. There's a yeah. there is a chance that we could strike a diplomatic deal in like months or even weeks from now. That's always, always on the table. But that that's a spark I'm talking about where that spark can send you in any direction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next thing you know, Pearl Harbor, oh, all of a sudden we're in the war. Before yes. that, we're just given troops. We're given, we're given money or we weren't given troops too much, but we're given uh, equipment. Yeah. Overnight, we're in the war. Yeah. Now, I don't think Russia's that dumb, but maybe they are. I don't know. <laughs> they could be. No, you're right. The really, really bad things could happen at the drop of a hat. Um, you know, NATO could get involved, a nuke could get launched, or mm-hmm. war could break out in multiple <clears throat> other countries. But also, very, very good stuff can happen oh, that no yeah. one saw coming. Like, like Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapon arsenal. Like mm-hmm. apartheid collapsed in South Africa in the '90s. Like other great stuff happened that no analyst predicted coming. So that's mm-hmm. also in play here. Now, this reminds yeah, me of uh, a conversation I've heard going around and actually suggested by, uh, I think it was a senator. I don't remember exactly who. Uh, if Putin were to die for one reason or another, not that I'm advocating that on our show, and you know, I'm not a diplomat or a, a politician. I don't know how that, how that would affect it. But is this Putin's war or is this Russia's war? So it's first and foremost Putin's war, but it's also Russia's war because of the control that he wields over the media there. You probably heard all the journalistic stories about how, you know, someone who lives in Ukraine, like calls their father who's back in Moscow. Mm. And he's like, dad, like they're, they just bombed my building. And he's like, no, no, they're not. They're trying to save you. Mm -hmm. It's like, right, right. Those the people back in Russia consuming Russian media are fully 
are just as captured as, you know, QAnon adherents mm. here are in the States to like, you know, pedophiles <laughs> like eating it's, babies in the Democratic Party. It's, yeah. it's the exact same level it's just of like misinformation in, in the USSR. Right. They yeah. just they were feeding them what they wanted to feed them. And granted, that could be happening over here. We don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. It's psyops. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Uh, that's another lesson I learned at my beat were following these foreign fighters in terrorism. Like media is like gargantuanly powerful mm-hmm. to the human psyche. And you only need if you get one percent of of the United States to you know, want to inflict violence, you've got like a third of a million people mm-hmm. that are, you know, finding guns and are on the war path. That's like terrifying. You mm-hmm. don't need that many people. That's why the fact that the United States Congress is not regulating digital media is the biggest mistake we are making foreign or domestic. It's it's an absolute powder keg. Who was it? It was Clinton, right? That uh, separated. <clears throat> he stopped all the laws where like, um, I can't remember the name of them where news channels had to be unbiased. Now they can just do whatever and go on their one side. Yeah. That I was a downfall was, for me. I thought it was Reagan. Didn't Reagan do that? I, I thought that was Reagan too, actually. Was it so Reagan? I, Maybe it was I yeah. think that's who it was. I but I, it. It's the same concept. You're just a different person. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's. Uh, I just, I've been screaming this on the rooftop for a couple of years now. I'm, I'm open to be you know, proven wrong on this, but it's still, it's just too dangerous. You know, Mm -hmm. again, you get like 99 people out of a hundred to consume the news responsibly. But if, if you, you let that one kind of go crazy with it and then you multiply it by the population of name your country, it's a really, really bad situation. And so like worse nowadays. Yeah. It's getting worse because remember Bill Pullman wrote, um, Bill Pullman, Robert, Robert Putnam wrote Bowling Alone. It's this like slow, like, like uh, loneliness epidemic mm. in the United States where like, when was the last time you went to your civic center and like, you know, met your neighbors there, or, like went to church or went to a Lions Club meeting or a Rotary Club meeting. Mm-hmm. These, um, these foci of community are just like, they don't happen anymore. Dead. Yeah. And then now you get a pandemic. Now we all have to sit indoors for two years. Now, where are we going to find our communities? Ergo, our identities is online. And that's where all the garbage is. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, you know, unfortunately like, traumatized or you're just having a tough go at life, you're going to be really, really attracted to some like heinous stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there it is for you. It's, it's all laid out in a perfect narrative to explain this chaotic world, order everything very simply so that your brain can process it all. And it makes you like a protagonist in whatever adventure you've decided is going on in the world. And, and you know, here we are. Then on top of it, you have people who let's, let's use racism for an example. If you run across someone, we've all seen it who's just being blatantly racist online, the immediate response is to just belittle the fuck out of that person. Yeah. Not saying they don't necessarily deserve it, but in that situation, you're not going to change their mind. If you Mm -hmm. just sit there and you just tell them they're a piece of shit for being racist, that's not going to change their mind. Right. Yeah. Right. You have to have conversations with these people and understand where they're coming from, but you're never going to see that because we don't have that type of self-control when it comes to online. It's just, Oh, it's the cancel culture of online. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Marshall McLuhan from the, from the 1960s. He said that the medium is the message, which means like whatever type of media is 
becomes like omnipresent in a, in a society. So first it was like radio, newspapers, TV, and now digital media, like the, the intricacies of that platform, they start to change the way we all communicate with each other and see each other. So like 240 characters, like dunking on our enemies is like, it's, you know, it's, it's second nature now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then Trump bought 9% of Twitter or not Trump, Elon, <laughs> Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> so when we're talking about this kind of uh, shift in the way people are interacting and the way people are viewing, you know, just other ideas and especially these people that are in isolation and compounding that with the things going on in Russia in particular, uh, that has, I think not, not just me. I think a lot of people have this same thought that that is a big risk to democracy. And I think that, uh, that has, that's something that you kind of give a lot of thought to as well yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read uh, Foreign Affairs magazine, which I think is by far the best foreign policy analysis out there. And a lot of people are trying to explain why democracy is slipping around the world. And they'll mention um, neoliberalism, where you know we tried to equate economic development with democracy, which ended up being a big farce. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's digital media. It's literally nothing else in my view, because if you are sort of have a conservative disposition and there's a lot of like underlying characteristics about sort of the way you look at the world. And one of them is like tribalism, like you're more prone to sort of identify an enemy and then do what you can to signal to your own people that you don't like that person or you don't like mm -hmm. them for these like very simple, overly simplistic reasons. Um, if you are of a more liberal mindset, you also have that because we're all tribal creatures to our core, but much less, you have much less of a propensity to try to find an enemy and identify yourself as the opposite of that person or group. And so there was only one way the preponderance of digital media was going to go. It was going to elevate much more conservative, reactionary, simplistic conspiratorial, like hostile and violent type of not only like rhetoric or communicating with each other, but politics. Mm -hmm. And so of course, democracies are going to fall where they're tenuous in places like the Philippines or Brazil, Hungary, Poland, even France now. Um, some have recovered a bit, but not as much, or India, not as much mm -hmm. as they are collapsing. And it's because, I mean, our societies are, kind of 50 50 among like liberal minded people and, and uh, conservative minded people there's there's like evolutionary psychology reasons for why that is um and so you don't have to tip the balance very far for the entire for an entire election to swing mm. a different direction that it's it hasn't gone in decades like in mexico so yeah that's here we like how we arrived here is not a surprise at all if you take all that into account i, I feel like it's very clear mm. We live in interesting times. We do. Now, Scary, have, but interesting. What, you know, at the end of the day, that's that's a huge problem. And it's like the entire system of society now. How do you even overcome something like that? I mean, you can. Congress needs to regulate digital media and needs to treat it like the, the level of danger that it actually packs. I mean, we don't let 
kids drink alcohol? Like why? Because they might do something irresponsible, hurt themselves, hurt somebody else. That makes total sense to everybody. Um, But digital media can do that too. I mean, teen suicide rates are like through the roof Mm. because of this. Like, why can't we age gate the internet? Why is that a bad idea? Mm. Um, You can't yell fire in a crowded auditorium. You will go to jail because you're, Mm. you're breaking a law. You're putting lots of people in actual danger. Like your, your first amendment rights to free speech should stop where other people's safety ends. That is what makes for a functional society. Mm. So saying that my first amendment rights are more important than the safety of everybody using digital media is not a democratic ideal. It's the opposite. Therefore, yeah. we need to age gate this stuff. We have to regulate it. It's way too dangerous not to. Unfortunately, they're going to play that card, right? They're sure. Just going to sit there yeah, and say because it's in the Constitution. It's like it's super easy. It's easy to get millions of other people on board with it if you just don't think about it too much. If you don't you know, yeah. scratch beneath the surface, it's very clean, very clear cut. It makes you sound like a moral, like a patriotic American. So it's like it's really easy to digest and take on. But I mean, it doesn't pass the sniff test for someone who's trying to get to the bottom of like, how do we make shit better and not worse? But I also think a lot of that comes down to the fact that Congress doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about when it comes to it. Like, it's very obvious that they are like technophobes and. <laughs> well, they're 80. Wait, uh, yeah. <laughs> All of them. Yeah. Having 80 year old. Literally. Um, but at the same time, let's say you did that. I think people are still going to find a way, right? Um, if there's always going to be a way they're always going to find a way around it It, it's the more you isolate people the the more you 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 harden their resolve right yeah that's true for any law i mean people get away with murder like very literally it's it's not a reason not to try to enforce laws against murder as much as you can right um but there are, I mean, there are a lot of different options that the U.S. government has in this regulatory regime. And one is like getting reports from the platforms themselves mm. or having, I don't know, like a, a committee that decides, well, how well did last month go? Um, what was the decrease in conspiratorial posts um, that made it to millions and millions of people? Like, did that go up? go down did it stay the same um how many like lawsuits are parents lobbying on facebook for you know causing their their teenage daughter to commit suicide from you know tiktok bullying or whatever it is i mean there are metrics by which we can decide if these things are getting better or worse and we can hold platforms accountable i mean it's really bad that it's only a handful of gigantic platforms that are running most of our digital media but one of the good things about that is that we know who the culprits are we know who the mm-hmm. big dogs are. And if we make Facebook, you know, like really, really take that shit down, that not only affects media here, it affects media all over the world. I mean, there was a mini genocide in Burma that happened because of Facebook, mm-hmm. right? And they don't have yep. anyone that like speaks or reads Burmese. They can't, you know, read like Burmese slang. And of course they don't. Like, and they, they were totally, totally unaccountable for that too. They. Nobody yeah. held Facebook responsible for being the facilitator in that event. Yeah. And everybody knows about it. There's yeah. on John Oliver. Like yep. this is public knowledge. It's just, it's, it's absurd that this hasn't 
been tackled yet. And it's, it's got a lot to do with like the dysfunctionality in Congress and like all electoral laws and all that shit. Um, that's kind of a different topic, but I mean, what should happen to me? I mean, this is just like, this is a no brainer. Do you find now that you're out of the CIA that you miss having all that data? No. No? <laughs> no. Is that overload? That's definitive. <laughs> yeah, that was hard. <laughs> it's because, so specifically what I was doing, I was doing the work of what we call a targeter. And so in, in terrorism, there are people who study groups and study ideology and study psychology. But most of us are like looking at people, trying mm-hmm. to figure out who's going to be dangerous and then neutralizing them. It's just like, it's the nature of that particular beast that may not go for like military mobilization or cyber, cyber strikes. Like you're not looking for people, you're looking more mm-hmm. for groups, I guess. So since I'm doing targeting work on individuals, the information that you're referring to is like, just stupid, just fire like, hose method, right? Mundane. Like the worst thing about terrorists is that they're a lot like you and me. They like have to like go to the grocery store and they like get in <laughs> arguments with their spouses. And so it's like, stop arguing with your spouse, like plan an attack so that I know what you're going to do. You know what I mean? Right. And so it's a lot of, it's a lot of just like minutia and sort of mundane stuff. That's not interesting at all dude unless, i can totally see coming home and being like to your wife be like fucking what's his face did that today too and it pisses me off <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i have to listen to like those are the hours of this stuff like just you know hoping that something important is going to be said and sometimes it never is but anyway it's it's like it's not interesting to anybody except the person who is like building a profile of this person to try to decide are they gonna do something bad and then what's the best way to neutralize them if they are so not really. And, and like having that access for five years, you kind of, you know, the novelty wears off a little bit. Right. You can't really like become Batman and like save the world with that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm, I was sitting there in a tie, a suit and tie, just like typing, like we're all nerds. We're just, mm-hmm. we're just nerds. Just like typing <laughs> it out. Like you know. looking at like that, you'll be watching the news and you'll know somewhere someone's got all the, the details on this person. You're never like, fuck. I wish I knew what was going on with that right now. No, it's, I usually like take a guess and I'm like pretty confident in my guess again. And you guys can do this too. Anybody can do this. Intelligence is remarkably intuitive. Like if you, if you think we probably have that capability, we probably do like a satellite that can, you know, that can see like the contours of like streets in an urban area in Tajikistan. If you think we can do that, then we probably, we probably can. Uh, but reading minds, if you think we cannot do that, we probably can't do that. Shit. What about lizard people? Oh, that's definitely, yeah. I actually can't talk about them. <laughs> oh, that's classified. So five years in the CIA and, you know, a lot of time collecting and analyzing data. What do you think your biggest takeaway is from your time you spent there? Um, working there... You know how when someone goes to law school, they say that law school taught them to think differently? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say they, that happened working at the agency, but not to tie things necessarily into like arguments based on constitutional statutes, but more like how to notice your biases and mm-hmm. not necessarily 
racial, but like, again, like I mentioned before, like the, the thousand like silly things I just mindlessly believe and I keep as right. my, what we call core assumptions, just being taught how strong and pervasive human biases are, how terribly unreliable the human memory is. Oh and God. that like my emotional lizard brain back here is making constant calculations about the world around me that are perfectly calibrated to survive in like a Neolithic tribal scenario on the grasslands of Africa and not in the 21st century, like mm -hmm. modern digital landscape that we're all living in. It's just, it's just a weird, it's a weird perspective on the human condition that I think would really benefit a lot of other people. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I also got like, side, that's really hard. Yeah, it is. And I got to really get into the, the minds of people who grew up in a completely different culture than me and conceiving of the depths of how different they are from me, but also how like scarily similar their lives are to mine and probably yours is like, it's a really cool kind of unifying like oneness type of of feeling that's like it's really gratifying it's a really cool thing to take with you as you go later into life i think people we've had this conversation multiple times on this show people should go travel before they do anything in life because to go yeah. somewhere else and see how someone else lives it could be very eye-opening it's huge yeah. yeah i got lucky most of my 20s i was out of the out of the u.s and i wouldn't trade it for i see my life as like before all of that and then after as a different person absolutely Mm -hmm. I same here. I agree. Well, I think that uh, that's a fantastic place to wrap it up. Brent, do you have anywhere in particular that you want people to uh, be directed to find information about you? Oh, man. Um, I am on Twitter. <laughs> I guess that's where I'm doing the most talking about foreign affairs. Uh, Brent Giannata, G-I-N-N-O-T-T-A. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there you have it, guys. Go look them up brush up on uh, foreign affairs. It's some pretty interesting stuff. What's the alien show you just did? It's called The Proof is Out There. And what's it on? Do you know? Oh, I don't. I don't actually. It's on the History Channel, but I don't know oh, when. Yeah, I did well, uh, six, six episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be looking out for it because I, I love uh, ancient aliens and the wacky theories. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> again, Brent, <laughs> thanks for being on. It's been fantastic. Hey, thanks, guys. This is really awesome. Well, Grizz, I think Brent was a fantastic guest. What are your thoughts? You're such a bitch. I thought Brent was great. <clears throat> I have an image in my head right now of everyone at CIA working on those old Mac computers where the lens, the fucking screen was like this big. Oh, yeah, yeah. MS DOS for everything. Yeah, black screen, white or green letters. That's it. Yep. Uh, although, to be honest, fuck everything up. based on our experience working with uh, government entities and peripheral companies i'm not, I'm not surprised at all that that's the, the way that everybody's not operating not I, I was surprised though that brent has not seen snowden you uh, haven't seen it either have you i haven't but i mean for him that might be a little too close to home you know what maybe I'm maybe he's just tired like usually yeah when you're working somewhere that shit becomes almost like a, a morbid fascination yeah um, but i, I, I that one so. might just be too close you might be right. But the more important question here is after talking to Brent and getting a bigger picture on what he saw, are you going to lose sleep at night worrying about terrorists? Me? No. Yes, you. I don't think you I'm would not. anyway. 
for one, I live in Rhode Island. They don't care about Rhode Island. Yeah, Rhode Island's not a big target. No. Um, two, they're always watching, right? I mean, mm-hmm. guess what? Shit's going to sneak through. Um, it happens. I'm not going to let it uh, run my life through fear. No, that's kind of how I look at it, too. I mean, at the end of the day, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I guess I could go to college and become a counterterrorism analyst, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to be honest with you guys right here and right now. I will not do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't see you working behind a desk for too long, Gary. No, it's not for me. I need to be up and walking around. Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. There are things out there you don't need to know about. And Elvis isn't dead. He just went home.